Chapter Eight of the Invasion by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Eight: Defenses of South London. Preparations were being continued night and day to place the working-class districts in Southwark and Lambeth in a state of strong defense, and the constant meetings convened in public halls and chapels by the newly formed League of Defenders incited the people to their work. Everybody lent a willing hand, rich and poor alike. People who had hitherto lived in comfort in Regent's Park, Hampstead, or one of the other better-class northern suburbs, now found themselves herded among all sorts and conditions of men and women, and living as best they could in those dull drab streets of Lambeth, Walworth, Battersea, and Kennington. It was, indeed, a strange experience for them. In the sudden flight from the north, parents had become separated from their children and husbands from their wives, so that in many cases haggard and forlorn mothers were in frantic search of their little ones, fearing that they might have already died of starvation or been trampled underfoot by the panic-stricken multitudes. The dense population of South London had already been trebled. They were penned in by the barricades in many instances, for each district seemed to be now placing itself in a state of defense independent of any other. Kennington, for instance, was practically surrounded by barricades, tons upon tons of earth being dug from the Oval and the Park. Besides the barricades in Harleyford Road and Kennington Lane, all the streets converging on the Oval were blocked up, a huge defense arm just being completed across the junction of Kennington and Kennington Park Roads, and all the streets running into the latter thoroughfare from that point to the big obstruction at the Elephant were blocked by paving stones, bags of sand, barrels of cement, bricks, and such like odds and ends impervious to bullets. In addition to this there was a double fortification in Lambeth Road, a veritable redoubt, as well as the barricade at Lambeth Bridge, while all the roads leading from Kennington into Lambeth Road, such as St. George's Road, Kennington Road, High Street, and the rest, had been rendered impassable and the neighboring houses placed in a state of defense. Thus the whole district of Kennington became, therefore, a fortress in itself. This was only a typical instance of the scientific methods of defense now resorted to. Mistakes made in North London were not now repeated. Day and night every able-bodied man, and woman too, worked on with increasing zeal and patriotism. The defenses in Haverstock Hill, Holloway Road, and Edgware Road, which had been comprised of overturned tramcars, motor buses, household furniture, etc., had been riddled by the enemy's bullets. The lesson had been heated, and now earth, sand, tiles, paving stones, and bricks were used. From nearly all the principal thoroughfares south of the river, the paving stones were being rapidly torn up by great gangs of men, and whenever the artillery brought up a fresh maxim or field gun the wildest demonstrations were made. The clergy held special services in churches and chapels, and prayer meetings for the emancipation of London were held twice daily in the Metropolitan Tabernacle at Newington. In Kennington Park, Camberwell Green, the Oval, Vauxhall Park, Lambeth Palace Gardens, Camberwell Park, Peckham Rye, and Southwark Park, a division of Lord Byfield's army, was encamped. They held the Waterloo terminus of the Southwestern Railway strongly, 
the Chatham Railway from the Borough Road Station, now the terminus, the South Eastern from Bricklayer's Arms, which had been converted into another terminus, as well as the Brighton Line at Battersea Park and York Road. The lines destroyed by the enemy's spies in the early moments of the invasion had long ago been repaired, and up to the present railway and telegraphic communication south and west remained uninterrupted. The Daily Telegraph had managed to transfer some of its staff to the offices of a certain printers in Southwark, and there, under difficulties, published several editions daily despite the German censorship. While North London was without any news except that supplied from German sources, South London was still open to the world, the cables from the South Coast being as yet in the hands of the British, and the telegraphs intact to Bristol and to all places in the West. Thus, during those stifling and exciting days following the occupation, while London was preparing for its great uprising, the South London Mirror, though a queer, unusual-looking sheet, still continued to appear, and was read with avidity by the gallant men at the barricade. Contrary to expectation, von Kronhelm was leaving South London severely alone. He was no doubt wise. Full well he knew that his men, once within those narrow, torturous streets beyond the river, would have no opportunity to maneuver, and would, as in the case of the assault of Waterloo Bridge, be slaughtered to a man. His spies reported that each hour that passed rendered the populace the stronger, yet he did nothing, devoting his whole time, energy, and attention to matters in that half of London he was now occupying. Everywhere the walls of South London were placarded with manifestos of the League of Defenders. Day after day fresh posters appeared, urging patience and courage, and reporting upon the progress of the League. The name of Graham was now upon everyone's lips. He had, it seemed, arisen as saviour of our beloved country. Every word of his inspired enthusiasm, and this was well illustrated at the mass meeting on Peckham Rye, when beneath the huge flag of St. George, the white banner with the red cross, the ancient standard of England, which the League had adopted as theirs, he made a brilliant and impassioned appeal to every Londoner and every Englishman. Report had it that the Germans had set a price upon his head, and that he was pursued everywhere by German spies, mercenaries who would kill him in secret if they could. Therefore he was compelled to go about with an armed police guard who arrested any suspected person in his vicinity. The government, who had at first laughed Graham's enthusiasm to scorn, now believed in him. Even Lord Byfield, after a long council, declared that his efforts to inspire enthusiasm had been amazingly successful, and it was now well known that the defenders and the army had agreed to act in unison towards one common end, the emancipation of England from the German thraldom. Some of the men of the Osnabrück Regiment, holding Canningtown and Limehouse, managed one night by strategy to force their way through the Blackwall Tunnel and break down its defences on the Surrey side in an attempt to blow up the South Metropolitan gasworks. The men holding the tunnel were completely overwhelmed by the number that pressed on, and were compelled to fall back, twenty of their number being killed. The assault was a victorious one, and it was seen that the enemy were pouring out, when of a sudden there was a dull heavy roar, followed by wild shouts and terrified screams, as there rose from the centre of the river a great column of water, and next instant the tunnel was flooded. Hundreds of the enemy 
being drowned like rats in a hole. The men of the Royal Engineers had, on the very day previous, made preparations for destroying the tunnel if necessary, and had done so ere the Germans were aware of their intention. The exact loss of life is unknown, but it is estimated that over four hundred men must have perished in that single instant, while those who had made the sudden dash towards the gas works were all taken prisoners and their explosives confiscated. The evident intention of the enemy being thus seen, General Sir Francis Bamford, from his headquarters at the Crystal Palace, gave orders for the tunnels at Rotherhithe and that across Greenwich Reach, as well as the several tube tunnels and subways, to be destroyed, a work which was executed without delay, and was witnessed by thousands who watched from the great disturbances and upheavals in the bed of the river. In the old Kent Road, the bridge over the canal, as well as the bridges in Wells Street, Sumner Road, Glengall Road, and Canterbury Road were all prepared for demolition in case of necessity, the canal from the Camberwell Road to the Surrey Dock forming a moat behind which the defenders might, if necessary, retire. Clapham Common and Brockwell Park were covered with tents, for General Bamford's force, consisting mostly of auxiliaries, were daily awaiting reinforcements. Lord Byfield, now at Windsor, was in constant communication by wireless telegraphy with the London headquarters at the Crystal Palace, as well as with Hibbert on the Malvern Hills and Woolmer at Shrewsbury. To General Bamford at Sydenham came constant news of the rapid spread of the national movement of defiance and Lord Byfield, as was afterwards known, urged the London commander to remain patient and invite no attack until the League were strong enough to act on the offensive. Affairs of outpost were, of course, constantly recurring along the river bank between Windsor and Egham, and the British free-shooters and frontiersmen were ever harassing the Saxons. Very soon von Kronhelm became aware of Lord Byfield's intention, but his weakness was apparent when he made no counter-move. The fact was that the various great cities he now held required all his attention and all his troops. From Manchester, from Birmingham, from Leeds, Bradford, Sheffield, and Hull came similar replies. Any withdrawal of troops from either city would be the signal for a general uprising of the inhabitants. Therefore, having gained possession, he could only now sit tight and watch. From all over Middlesex, and more especially from the London area, came sensational reports of the drastic measures adopted by the Germans to repress any signs of revolt. In secret the agents of the League of Defenders were at work, going from house to house, enrolling men, arranging for secret meeting-places, and explaining in confidence the program as put forth by the Bristol Committee. Now and then, however, these agents were betrayed, and their betrayal was in every case followed by a court-martial at Bow Street, death outside in the yard of the police station, and the publication in the papers of their names, their offence, and the hour of the execution. Yet, undaunted and defiantly, the giant organization grew as no other society had ever grown, and its agents and members quickly developed into fearless patriots. It being reported that the Saxons were facing Lord Byfield with the Thames between them, the people of West London began in frantic haste to construct barricades. The building of obstructions had, indeed, now become a mania north of the river as well as south. The people, fearing that there was to be more fighting in the streets of London, 
began to build huge defences all across West London. The chief were across King Street, Hammersmith, where it joins Goldhawk Road, across the junction of Goldhawk and Uxbridge Roads, in the Harrow Road where it joins Admiral Road, and Willesden Lane, close to Paddington Cemetery, and the Latimer Road opposite St. Quentin Park Station. All the side streets leading into the Goldhawk Road, Latimer Road, and Ladbroke Grove Road were also blocked up, and hundreds of houses placed in a state of strong defence. With all this, von Kronhelm did not interfere. The building of such obstructions acted as a safety valve to the excited populace, therefore he rather encouraged them than discountenanced it. The barricades might, he thought, be of service to his army if Lord Byfield really risked an attack upon London from that direction. Crafty and cunning though he was, he was entirely unaware that those barricades were being constructed at the secret orders of the League of Defenders, and he never dreamed that they had actually been instigated by the British commander-in-chief himself. Thus the day of reckoning hourly approached, and London, though crushed and starving, waited in patient vigilance. At Enfield Chase was a great camp of British prisoners in the hands of the Germans, amounting to several thousands. Contrary to report, both officers and men were fairly well treated by the Germans, though with his limited supplies von Kronhelm was already beginning to contemplate releasing them. Many of the higher-grade officers who had fallen into the hands of the enemy, together with the Lord Mayor of London, the Mayors of Hull, Goole, Lincoln, Norwich, Ipswich, and the Lord Mayors of Manchester and Birmingham, had been sent across to Germany, where, according to their own reports, they were being detained in Hamburg and treated with every consideration. Nevertheless, all this greatly incensed Englishmen. Lord Byfield, with Hibbert and Woolmer, was leaving no stone unturned in order to reform our shattered army, and again opposed the invaders. All three gallant officers had been to Bristol, where they held long consultation with members of the cabinet, with the result that the government still refused to entertain any idea of paying the indemnity. The Admiralty were confident now that the command of the sea had been regained, and in Parliament itself a little confidence was also restored. Yet we had to face the hard facts, that nearly two hundred thousand Germans were upon British soil, and that London was held by them. Already parties of German commissioners had visited the National Gallery, the Wallace Collection, the Tate Gallery, and the British and South Kensington Museums, deciding upon and placing aside certain art treasures and priceless antiques ready for shipment to Germany. The Raphaels, the Titians, the Rubenis, the Fra Angelicos, the Velasquezes, the Elgin Marbles, the best of the Egyptian, Assyrian, and Roman antiques, the Rosetto Stone, the early biblical and classical manuscripts, the historic charters of England and such like treasures which could never be replaced, were all catalogued and prepared for removal. The people of London knew this, for though there had been no newspapers, information ran rapidly from mouth to mouth. German sentries guarded our world-famous collections, which were now indeed entirely in the enemy's hands, and which the Kaiser intended should enrich the German galleries and museums. One vessel flying the British flag had left the Thames laden with spoil in an endeavour to reach Hamburg. 
but off Harwich she had been sighted and overhauled by a British cruiser, with the result that she had been steered to Dover. Therefore our cruisers and destroyers, having thus obtained knowledge of the enemy's intentions, were keeping a sharp lookout about the coast for any vessels attempting to leave for German ports. Accounts of fierce engagements in the channel between British and German ships went the rounds, but all were vague and unconvincing. The only solid facts were that the Germans held the great cities of England, and that the millions of Great Britain were slowly but surely preparing to rise in an attempt to burst asunder the fetters that now held them. Government, army, navy, and parliament had all proved rotten reeds. It was now every man for himself, to free himself and his loved ones, or to die in the attempt. Through the south and west of England, Graham's clear, manly voice was raised everywhere, and the whole population were now fast assembling beneath the banner of the defenders in readiness to bear their part in the most bloody and desperate encounter of the whole war. The swift and secret death being meted out to the German sentries, or in fact to any German caught alone in a side street, having been reported to von Kronhelm, he issued another of his now famous proclamations which was posted upon half the hoardings in London. But the populace at once amused themselves by tearing it down wherever it was discovered. Von Kronhelm was the arch-enemy of London, and it is believed that there were at that moment no fewer than five separate conspiracies to encompass his death. Londoners detested the Germans, but with a hatred twenty times the more intense did they regard those men who, having engaged in commercial pursuits in England, had joined the colors and were now acting as spies. End of chapter 8. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.